Good morning. So good to be with you. Uh, you guys, we are so excited to do Rooted this fall. So if you are interested, if you just want some more information, come talk to one of us. Uh, but registration is now open on our website. We'd love to have you join us for the Rooted Small Group Experience uh, this fall. Well, this morning, we have a special guest with us. Uh, he is Denny Conroy. He's, he's uh, a member of, of North Haven. Him and his wife, Anne, have been members here for uh, four years. Uh, Denny is, is continuing our Shame and Grace series that we've been in for the last, uh, last few weeks. Uh, Denny served as a St. Paul police officer for 32 years. He has his doctorate in psychology and his practice as a, uh, he has practiced as a, um, a psychologist for, since 1982. Uh, he's authored two books, and uh, he, is, he has come to share his wisdom, his experience with us uh, regarding shame. And uh, he is uniquely qualified to do so because uh, many people who had come to see him were motivated to do so uh, because of shame. And uh, Denny brings his, his unique perspective and experience to, to help us um, help us gain a better understanding of what shame is. And, and, and Denny spent years and years working with families of fallen police officers, uh, officers who died in the line of duty. Uh, Denny has worked alongside uh, family members uh, for a number of years. So would you please welcome Denny up to the stage? Thank you. And as we get ready to go here, would you, would you join me would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for uh, who you created Denny to be, the experience and the wisdom that you've given him. Uh, we ask that you would open our hearts and open our minds to, uh, to learn this morning and ultimately draw us into a deeper relationship with you this morning. It's in your name. Amen. And kids, you are dismissed for, uh, to head back with, with Krista. Thanks. Good morning. Today we're going to talk about the sources of shame, where it comes from, and what it means. But to start that, I want to recap just a little bit about where we've started and uh, the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is about something we've done. Shame goes deeper, and it's about who we are. So, for example, if I would steal something, I would feel guilt because I stole something. I would feel shame because I would see myself as a thief. So it's, it's the shame that defines who we are. The guilt is just about what we've done. So if you take just a minute uh, and look at shame, we can see how it impacts our lives in a lot of different ways. So, shame started with Adam and Eve. Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were naked, and they felt no shame. However, after the fall, after the original sin, they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They were ashamed of their nakedness. Shame has come from original sin and has been handed down ever since. 
Before that, there was no shame. Um, small children, even today, you see, if you've got little kids, sometimes you know that they don't care if they're dressed or not dressed. Doesn't matter to them whether they're in the house or outside. I have a granddaughter that my, grand, or my son would have to go find her, and she'd be, when she was just little, she'd be wandering around the yard naked. It didn't matter to her. There was no shame. I'm going to hazard a guess that not one person in this, this church would feel comfortable walking down the street naked today. Just a rough guess, but we would feel that shame. And that's something that came with original sin. Early on, Pastor Adam talked about healthy shame and unhealthy shame. And biblical shame is healthy shame. It's, it's what God uses us to direct our moral compass, to, to say, hey, you're not going the right direction. You're headed the wrong way. Um, in Jeremiah, he says, I will put your skirts over your face so that your shame may be seen. Well, what was happening during that period was that the Israelites weren't worshiping the one true God. They were making these little carvings. They were making their idols. They were worshiping this. They were worshiping that. And God said, you know what? I want you to come back. I want you to come back. Revelation, the Laodiceans had a great world. They thought they were very prosperous financially. They were rich. They were making a lot of money. They had wonderful fabric, cloth. They were, they were known worldwide for their, their black wool. And they had a special salve that, that covered their eyes and was healing. So as you look at that, what God said is, I will counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, the worth from God, that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So if you look at God talking about shame in Revelation, we've got shame in Genesis, we've got shame in Revelation, that pretty well covers the whole spectrum, doesn't it? The Old Testament is filled with shame. There's references throughout Scripture to shame. So, to kind of summarize it, though, if you look at 2 Corinthians 7.10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. I want you just for a minute to substitute the word shame for sorrow. Then we could read, godly, sorrow, godly shame brings repentance that leads to salvation, which is what we see happening over and over and over through Scripture. Worldly shame brings death. So when we focus on, on the things of this world that, we are, that cause shame, that we get involved in that kind of shame, it brings a spiritual death. So as we, we talk about shame, biblical shame is the healthy shame. The unhealthy shame is the shame that we internalize or the shame that we cast on each other. And we do that in a number of ways. 
when we talk about the beginnings of shame, young children continually tell you what they, well, they express their needs, don't they? They might cry to let us know, hey, I'm hungry, or my diaper needs some attention here, okay? What happens when those needs aren't met? When those needs are met, they feel warmth, they feel cared for, they feel loved, they feel worthwhile. But when those needs are not met, there's that emptiness. They've done a number of studies with with monkeys where with, with young monkeys, some of them have gotten a mother's warmth and love, and they've prospered. Others, they, they furnished with a wire cage that resembled the mother in shape and size, and they didn't do so well. They didn't get that sense of being worthwhile. No matter, we're not telling a one-year-old baby that you're worthwhile in words because they're, they're not there yet. But when we meet their needs, when we hold them, when we love them, when we change their diapers, when we feed them, what are we communicating? You are worth my time. You know, the other day I was talking to somebody and I realized the, the one thing on earth that none of us can get more of is just that. It's time, isn't it? And we all have a certain amount of time. I can't go down to the time store and buy another year or two years or five years, no matter how wealthy I am. So when we give that child our time, we are giving them a most precious commodity, one thing that we cannot replace. And when we do that, we're showing them that they're worthwhile. Now, they don't think of it in all those terms, okay? But that's what we're doing. We're showing them. So at about one and a half to two years old, they start to experience an awareness of self, those secondary emotions. That's the point where we start seeing shame. You should be ashamed of yourself. You, uh, they start to feel that. Eric Erickson is a noted psychologist, a developmental psychologist. He says that the, one of the very first developmental tasks is basic trust versus mistrust. We learn that the world is a place where we can either trust or we can't trust. That comes a lot from our environment, the people around us. And what he also says, though, is that, that once we miss that boat, if we, we fall into the distrust side, basic distrust, it's really hard later to change that. It's hard later to see the world as a warm, loving, trusting place and to see ourselves as persons of value in that world. So we grow up in an environment of praise or criticism. And again, that feeds into our sense of self-worth or our sense of shame. Our sense of self-worth or shame. Um, sometimes parents, no matter how many good things the child does, what will they point out? Why did you get a B when all the rest were A's? 
Why did you forget to clean your room when you did all the rest of your chores? Instead of saying, thank you for doing all this, what do we focus on? We focus on the negatives. And what does that do? It infuses shame into the child. It's a message that says you're not good enough. We internalize other people's comments about our behaviors. We see that that when someone finds fault with something we did, we internalize that not to just, we didn't do the, the right, we didn't do it right, but I am worthless because I didn't do it right. What I see too is that a lot of times victims will blame themselves for what happened to them. An abused spouse might say it was my fault because I shouldn't have made peas for dinner. I talked to a woman who had been sexually assaulted and she said it was my fault. I deserved it because of the way I was dressed. Now I'm sure that no one in here believes that, but she believed it. She believed it because then it gave her an illusion of control. It was like smoke and mirrors. It wasn't real control. But if she deserved it because of the way she was dressed and she never dressed that way again, this would never happen again. She wasn't worthy enough to just simply say, I didn't deserve it. There was that shame involved. And we see that a lot. The lack of a positive is not, I mean, the lack of a negative is not a positive. The lack of a negative is not a positive. A neutral is not a positive, it's a neutral. And in fact, oftentimes that neutral can become a negative. I had a couple come in and I asked them one day, I said, does your wife know that you love her? It's a reasonable question, isn't it? He said, well, of course she does. I told her once and I told her I'd tell her if it ever changed. Do you think she feels the warmth in that? Do you think that makes her feel worthwhile? Nope, shaming, shaming. Um, They say the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Indifference can be very, very painful because we're not important enough to matter. A lot of the fathers of my father's generation believed that their job was to earn a living for their families, to fix the car if it broke, uh, those kinds of things. But emotional support, wow, that's not my job. And it wasn't their job. Or at least they didn't see it. So they didn't provide it. It doesn't mean they were bad. It means that they grew up with that culture where men don't emote. That emptiness is a form of emotional abuse. How often have you heard your parents say that they were proud of you? That they loved you? That you were truly a wonderful creation of God? If you've got kids, how often do you tell your kids? Or if you've got friends, how often do you say to them, 
I think that, that it's really neat having you as a friend. When we don't say those things, there's an emptiness. We make assumptions which, which aren't positives. And as kids grow up, they start to feel that shame. Um, when we talk about cultural shame, we learn that, that kids, are, that we're either good or bad by what our community says about us. What do they tell us? So you know that you're good by what your community tells you. You know you're bad by what your community tells you. So um, can we move to the next one? Perfect, thank you. So we've got cultural expectations. Um, physical. What are women supposed to look like? What do, what do women on TV look like? What do men on TV look like? We've got those stereotypes that are promoted by the media, and that's what we should live up to. Those are the expectations. Are they realistic? Nope, they're not. Physical abnormalities. Years ago, my wife and I took in foster children. We had three kids that we took in. And those two kids, are three kids, the oldest was seven, then there was a five-year-old, then there was like a two-year-old, I think. And they were left at home alone on a farm in the winter with no phone, no shoes, and the oldest fed them for the week on soup and popcorn because that's all that was in the house. So, while mom and dad were gone, the two-year-old bit into a live electrical cord. Do you know what happens when you bite into a live electrical cord? It hurts. It seared half of his mouth shut. And because he got no medical attention, it started to heal that way. And they couldn't do anything about it until his face was fully developed. They couldn't do any plastic surgery. What do you think it was like for that kid going through grade school and junior high and high school? Do you think that perhaps anybody might have mentioned that half of his mouth was seared together? Do you think he might have been shamed because of it? Of course he was. We've got the impact of social media. We've got Facebook, we've got Snapchat, we've got Instagram, we've got Twitter, we've got... Well, we've got a new one every day. What impact has that had on kids today, more so than adults, but adults as well? Adults are, are impacted just as well. So, with kids. You know, when I was a kid, we had gossip, and probably for you too. You talk about other kids. And... But I couldn't, with a stroke or two on my fingers, reach out to 100,000 people and say something nasty about somebody else. Could I? How has social media over the last 10 years impacted shame? Has it? Yep. 
Do you know that over the last decade, adolescent suicide has increased by 56%? How much of that has to do with shame? I went to the home of a, an adolescent boy, a 17-year-old boy, who died by suicide because he got a B on his report card. I got a B on my report card once, and it was cause for celebration. What was it that made it so horrible for this 17-year-old that life was no longer worth living because he got a B on his report card? That the shame was so deep, the pain was so deep, that he took his own life because of it. Shame. We start to internalize the view of others. We start to internalize the view of others. And so, if we look around, um, people here, a lot of you know me, and what you see, though, is you see in every Sunday snap, snapshot. True? And so you may see a series of snapshots, just like you do with each other. You know each other with a series of snapshots. The people that know you see that series of snapshots. You, on the other hand, see an ongoing video. This is live stream for you. You don't miss a bit of it. And yet what we tell ourselves when we listen to the voices of others is that snapshot has more validity than the ongoing video. Does that make sense? Is there any logic in that? And yet, <laughs> how often do we do it? That snapshot that we get from others can change lives. A lot of times, parents will have expectations. I had a couple come in. They brought their son in to see me. He was a 17-year-old boy. And uh, dad was a vice president of a major corporation. Mom had her own real estate brokerage. Both high-functioning parents, very high-functioning. They had already arranged for their son to go to Harvard. But he just wanted to be a baker. He just wanted to be a baker. So they brought him in to have him fixed in therapy. What were they doing to that kid? Weren't they sending the message that he was inadequate because his dreams didn't match their dreams? I think the one that needed the fixing was the parents. What have we done with all of that? We tend to shame ourselves. We discount the positives. How often when somebody says something nice to you, do you say, oh, it was nothing. It was no big deal. when it really was. 
We discount the positives. When at an early age, maybe we were taught, don't be too conceited, don't be too proud. But you know what? We've taken that to a step where we're not even being honest anymore. And we end up discounting those positives. So if I were to say something really nice about any of you, it's appropriate to say thank you. But if you stop and think a minute, when you discount that compliment, what else are you doing? You're discounting me. You're discounting the giver of the compliment. Isn't that true? It's appropriate to just say thank you. Or even thank you, I worked hard on that. We judge ourselves by undefined goals. I should be a better person. What does the word should mean? Should indicates an obligation or a duty, typically when criticizing somebody's actions. I should be a better person. That means that I am inadequate because I'm not a better person. We use that word should to shame. We do that. I should study harder. What does that mean? I should study harder. I should sit with a book longer. I should focus more. What does it mean? It's an undefined goal. I should work out more often. Take a moment and just think about your own I shoulds. We've all got them. I should. Maybe if you're a golfer, you're saying, I should be playing with a four handicap, when really you're playing with an eight. I should. We set those unreasonable goals. Or maybe my goal is to graduate from high school. Well, once I do that, I'm a lousy person if I don't graduate from college. I'm a lousy person if I don't get a graduate degree. I'm a lousy person if I don't get a doctorate. What I hear from people all the time in, in the police department says, well, why aren't you getting promoted? Well, what happens in police agencies, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but, but as you get promoted, you stop being a real police officer. And you end up being an administrator. So if, if what you're really makes your heart happy is helping people, you end up getting away from that more and more the higher you go. So for the people who really like being of service, oftentimes people shame them and say, well, why aren't you a sergeant? Why aren't you a lieutenant? Because I don't want to be. And yet that guilt, that shame, all comes in there. Years ago, I watched a video by a guy named Charlie Plum. And Charlie Plum was a POW in Vietnam, and he was there for, I think, uh, four years, five years, something like that. And he talked about his high school football coach, Coach Smith, who said, boys, if you think you're winners, or if you think you're losers, you're right. If you think you're winners, or if you think you're losers, 
you're right. How much does how we think of ourselves tie into? If we think we're winners, or if we think we're losers. So when we start to talk about uh, magnifying our flaws, we may take a minor flaw and say, oh, it's the end of the world. Oh, it's horrible. Teenagers are great at that. Because for te teenagers, and some of you are teenagers perhaps, and some have them, it's either really, really great, awesome, or nothing, a dud. But there's not a whole lot in the middle, is there? So when we're talking about ourselves and we're talking about those minor flaws, which way do they go? They tend to go to the worthless. When we talk about the phrases of shame, and we talk about shame and you should be ashamed of yourself, what does that really mean? You should be ashamed of yourself. It means that, that you ought to be ashamed for not feeling ashamed. It's kind of a double whammy, isn't it? And we hear that. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, how about this? I'm ashamed of you. Wow. I'm ashamed of you. What that says is you are not a worthwhile person. I'm ashamed of you. And what happens too often, I see parents who try and motivate their children using shame. The problem is, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Instead of saying, you can do it, and give them that kind of support and praise, it's, I guess you're not good enough for this. Or I guess you're not strong enough, or fast enough, or whatever it is. But, but they use that shame, and it's an incredibly high-risk technique. Don't use it. When we talk about how churches feed shame, Smead's got three voices of shame that he talks about. Sense of voice of duty required me to be perfect before I could be acceptable to God. I was flawed, worse than imperfect, and all a totally unacceptable human being and the voice of grace, which Pastor Adam will be talking about in the next couple of weeks. Churches shame people. Churches are often incredibly judgmental. What I've heard from a number of pastors is that, that people in their churches feel shamed because I don't know the Bible as well as others in the church. And so instead of feeling like, like I have less knowledge, I am less of a person because. Years ago, I talked to a woman who'd gone to a church for three or four years, gone to Bible studies, very active in the church, decided she should become a member of that church. So she had an interview with the elders, and they asked her, what will you say to Jesus when you get to heaven? She said, I'll tell Jesus I lived a good life. Well, I, I knew the woman well enough to know that she truly believed that we are saved by grace. But she was not very articulate. And immediately, those, those elders told her, we're really sorry, but you can't join this church. And when she came to see me, she sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. 
and said, what a terrible person I must be because I can't join a church. So we do tend to shame. We do tend to be judgmental. We are human. We are not perfect, none of us. But I urge you to be cautious in that judgment. And as we summarize, remember there are two types of shame, healthy shame from Scripture, unhealthy from others, or from ourselves. Shame is pervasive. It can control our lives. And it can be chronic, but does not need to be chronic. And next week and the week after, Pastor Adam's going to be talking about how to move out of that. So I want to encourage you to stay tuned until next week when Pastor Adam continues this series. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you humbly. We thank you for all of the things you give us, all of the blessings that you bestow. We would ask that you would watch over us and guide us and keep us sheltered in your arms, you who loves us, who shows us that we are worthy. Until next we meet, in Jesus' name, amen.